You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Bat. The Prime Minister of Sweden visited Washington today and my tiny little nipples went to France. And Bruce Nolan. Yo, brethren, what up with thee? Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat, along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. I didn't say where you can find us. No. I messed up. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. Most people probably already knew those things. So, But we messed up the entire foundation of the pod, and now nothing will ever be the same again. Yeah. We really are, you know, we've built our house upon the sand. As opposed to on the rock. But I we, appreciate any parables yeah. that you are willing to throw my but way. We will we will soldier on still. So, I mean, we're a couple days removed, right? So some of, like, it's is, isn't it kind of surprising how much you settle into the positive reality easier and quicker than you are able to, you know, get over or normalize sometimes the negative reality? Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. You know, the negative stuff has a tendency to hang on a little bit longer than the positive stuff. I, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but that's true for me. I think it's true for you. Yeah, I mean, like right now, we're recording this Tuesday night. The Bills are in the playoffs. A sense of euphoria that was present is gone. And in its place is like a very warm contentment. Like it's, yeah. it's not just contentment. It's not just like I'm satisfied. There is a warmth to it that I'm that I'm happy. Like there's a there's a joy present, but it is different than if we had say lost the game. The, the, like the the swing on the negative end of things would probably be a stronger feeling than what I'm at right now, which is just surprising considering the legacy with which you know we are coming out of with all of the struggles of the drought and the, even the four Super Bowls and the Music City Miracle. I mean, we have, similar to maybe the Browns and a couple other franchises perhaps, we have this these merit badges <laughs> from a, a, a troop that you do not want to be part of, right? Yeah, it's the heartbreak merit badges. Yeah, yeah. And so for us to have come so far and experienced something where we are now, it, people, I think, have really settled into it. I have really settled into it quickly, where it is not this beaming sense of joy or light. It is just, ah, <sighs> like feels good. And maybe it's because there's two weeks until the playoffs. 
that could be it. Like two weeks before the stakes really are going to be there for the next 14 days or, you know, however long it is. You know, we're, we're sort of playing, as many people have said, with house money. We're, we're the number five seed, no less. With house money? And I thought my jokes were bad. <laughs> Maybe. We are playing with house money. And, you know, I, I just don't think people are jumping in the snow now on Tuesday night. You and I talked about this after the Dallas game, that the when the drought ended, we felt positive. And today, we feel positive. But positive is very broad. If you want to narrow it down, when the drought ended, it was almost, it was just relief. It was, thank God, that's over. And this over, overwhelming rush of emotion that comes from it finally being over. Today, it's different. Today, it's like legitimate warm optimism yes i think that's probably what it is it's not relief it's optimism that could be part of it at least i don't know anyways i just think it's i I, it's a it's a cool place to be and it's i wouldn't trade it for the the alternative oh absolutely if i have to go through another drought just to feel like the way i felt yeah and that new year's moment yeah where andy dalton throws a pass no thank you no thank you the juice is not worth the squeeze yes correct correct so we are going to go through all of the, the many, many things to talk about here with the Bills and, and this game that we just got against the Pittsburgh Steelers, which that one feels really good to me. <laughs> I was I was a little bit I, I we've talked about how like during the game, I'm more I'm, I'm very reserved more so than I am in the regular world and vice versa for you a little bit. Funny story. I have discovered the method behind Bruce's game-watching emotions. Oh, interesting. I figured it out. Self-discovery is always great. Yeah, so here's the deal. Intrinsically, I believe, I, I obviously do this subconsciously, that there is supposed to be a level of emotion displayed at a football game, okay? And I feel the need subconsciously to balance and to find an equilibrium in the room in which I am watching the game. So when I'm watching with my wife and she's really calm, I'm freaking out. When I'm watching with my wife and she's freaking out, I'm really calm, like super calm, really reserved, very quiet, deep breath. Let's just, let's watch it and then we can react at the end. But if I'm watching the game in a scenario where everyone else is like really calm, then I like freaking out for some reason. It's I feel like subconsciously there's supposed to be a level of energy in that room, and I feel the need to fill it if it's lacking elsewhere. Huh, and I didn't know this until we watched the Ohio State Michigan game and then the Buffalo game the next day, and I started to figure this out. And I was like, oh, so when they're freaking out, my my father and my wife at that point were freaking out. I'm very calm. And when they're very calm, I'm freaking out. Well, now we know. Now we know. Let's start. You'll start with the offense or the defense? Let's start with the defense. Start with the defense. Defense won us the game, right? In, For sure. in large part. I mean, the defense absolutely strangled Duck Hodges. And the Pittsburgh offense. James Conner had a couple nice runs. 
that, the, he threw a lot of 50-50 balls, which, you know, it's we talked about it. Noodle arm quarterbacks, that's what they have in their arsenal are 50-50 balls. That's it. So, and the Bills just shut him down. I mean, absolutely four interceptions. I will be very surprised. The people from PFF who were so vocal about Josh Allen have been Mm, uncharacteristically mum on Twitter since that game. So I'm just interested to see when they come back to the topic of Josh Allen and Duck Hodges, what their what their willingness to adjust their perspectives would be. I don't think their willingness to adjust their perspective has anything to do with Josh Allen. I think it has a lot to do with Duck Hodges. So I, I think that their counter to that would be, yes, we were wrong about Duck Hodges being better than Josh Allen, but Josh Allen still stinks. Oh, good. I, I don't. I, I really don't think that you're gonna you're gonna get anywhere there. Yeah, that's fine. I will not let them live rent free in my head. I do not care. Okay, the defense. I don't care. <laughs> don't give me that. Bruce is uh, giving me like that dog, like tilt his head. Don't quite understand what you're saying. Look, I care, but I am in a much better place than I was a year ago. I will say that since we've done the methods of measurement pod. And I've kind of understood what everyone's trying to do and that it's okay to not like these things or it's okay to recognize their inadequacies. I just don't really have much of a problem saying that I don't care what PFF grades a player at. Like it's, it's, it can be a piece of information and that is, that is it. So yes. I still don't like them, so I I do enjoy seeing them be wrong or get trolled as if they were wrong. I enjoy that, but I have no desire to like lead the campaign or really do anything other than hit a couple hearts whenever I see other people participating in the war. So, okay, so let's start with the rush defense. The rush defense was. I mean, a concern, it felt very similar to me to the Denver game where you were playing an offense with serious limitations in the passing game. They even had Cortland Sutton, though. They even had a better wide receiver. James Washington's good. Well, okay. So they have they had some talent on the outside, but they had a quarterback in Brandon Allen, which is quite similar. It looks like, you know, as far as output and productivity to Duck Hodges, the Bills shut him down. They did a bigger number on Duck Hodges with the four interceptions than they did on Brandon Allen. And the worry was that the Broncos run running game, which is a strength of theirs, would be a problem for us. I think people were maybe worrying that the Steelers were going to try to do the same sort of thing. It just didn't happen. Part of the reason I think it didn't happen is the Steelers didn't really commit to it. The Steelers threw the ball way more than they should have in a game that close especially with a third-string quarterback. And now coming in to the game, some of the commentary about the Steelers was that they felt Duck Hodges was ready to take on more on his plate. Well, that doesn't mean you go full Big Ben and you throw the ball 38 times or you call 40 pass plays, right? That's, That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. But one of the reasons that I think that the Steelers may have may have done a little Dallasing. You know, we talked about Dallas coming in with some inexplicably strange game plans. Is that they they broke a big one right off the bat, 15 yarders right off the bat, and then the next couple of runs went for nothing. And they just said, 
well, screw it. Or we got Duck Hodges, we got James Washington. Let's just chuck it with Duckett. And <laughs> I, I think we go, go on. Finish your thought. If well, and just like Dallas, they played right into the strength of the yeah, Buffalo Bills defense. Part of me thinks that when when you get to a point where you start to feel like drives are very precious, which I think very early in this game, a productive drive, you you felt like it was going to be very very precious. And I think that if you come to the belief that we might get a couple runs, but are we going to get one out of every three runs is going to be eight yards? Like, I, I don't know if it's going to be that way. Are they going to stop us for six in a row, which is two full drives of no offensive production? And then you start as, a, as an offensive coordinator, I think, playing like the what if scenario. Like, what should I do here? I, I've got to generate something. And then if you pass early in the series and you have a negative play, now a run almost, it feels like you, you, you can't. Like, it makes no sense. So I can understand it. I, I think it's a, it takes a particular kind of discipline for a offensive coordinator to commit to the run, even when you're having struggles as an offense. But admittedly, Dallas and perhaps Denver and Pittsburgh all should have done that and potentially, you know, they would have gotten more out of the game than they did otherwise. I'll tell you who probably will do that, though. New England. Boo! Boo! So that's how they got a lot of their stuff on track against Cincinnati. And I would anticipate them doing it to the Bills. So the Bills rush defense that has suddenly been better the last couple of weeks. They're going to face a real test. They need to bring it. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to talk about the defensive backfield, or do you want to talk about the defensive line next? Defensive backfield. Okay. Which the, the, the star, I mean, our darling after this game is Tredavious White. And just give him the Pagula Bucks, right? Just the star all, after every game. All of the Pagula Bucks. All of the Pagula Bucks. I mean, we might not even have any Pagula Bucks left after what we have to do with Trey the White. The Pagulas might be broke and have to sell the team because they gave all their money to Travis White. Yeah. But I mean, he's he's a beast. I said on Pat Moran's podcast a couple weeks ago that making Tredavious White the highest paid corner in the league this offseason is basically a no-brainer. I said, if you're top eight... It's, if the sooner you do it, the better. Yeah, if you're top eight at your position... You're going to reset the market. And you want to reset the market before Jalen Ramsey signs. So as he's cleaning out his locker, walk up, say, listen, is this an appropriate number? Sign here, please. <laughs> yeah. Because it really is simple. It's really that simple. He needs to be the highest paid corner in the league. I have every confidence that if you offer to make him the highest paid corner in the league, he'll probably accept that as far as guaranteed money divided by years. And you go with it. Is there a dark horse in this race that the Bills are going to say, we could draft a replacement? I do not currently see that as being a viable option. I have a hard time imagining a thought process based on everything I know about being in McDermott that would lead them to that ending. Okay. I mean, there are positions that are very expensive to pay that are harder to replace than others. Yes. You know, running back is a position that's expensive to pay and easy to replace. Yes. Corners, I don't know. I mean, like, there are good cor- there's always good young corners, but is it hard to get one? Yes. I know that because if you look around the league, there are some, some good solid corners, and people keep drafting them over and over again in the top five 
to try and get their lockdown guy. And, you know, a corner, pass rusher, offensive lineman, quarterback, offensive weapon. These are the people that you, you know, you pay. You don't pay really significant run-stuffing nose tackles a ton of money. You don't pay Star Latulale $18 million a year. You don't, that's just, there are certain things that are more valuable and the market determines what's valuable. So value is determined by scarcity, supply and demand. That's how this works. That's how all of this works. The reason why quarterbacks who are reasonable are getting paid $25 million a year is because it's so hard to find someone who's reasonable. Yeah. There aren't 32 reasonable quarterbacks. There aren't 32 reasonable quarterbacks. That's the reason why that happens. And so if you have running backs who we see every single year, multiple running backs who come out of nowhere and are really good players, that's the reason they don't get paid. It's not because they're not important to the offense. It's because the market has dictated that the supply is perfectly reasonable to meet demand. And as such, the valuation of those things goes down. Mm. Okay, well, now we have to talk about the defensive line. We, we have, do. We have to talk about Shaq and Jordan Phillips. They were the guys who got on the stat sheet. Ed Oliver and Jerry Hughes may have had good games. Trent Murphy had a fine game. Even Starla Tulele maybe have had a fine game. But Jordan Phillips and Shaq... Lawson, they're, they're finding themselves on top of the quarterback. And that is, that, is, that is valuable. Is it so valuable that we need to resign them? I mean, there are already a lot of people who were in that camp before the last couple of weeks. And I think the fuel is just being added to the fire. And I have to say that when I see, when I see the level of buy-in from those guys and how they represent and talk about the team and how they talk about the locker room and how they talk about their teammates and the coaches and Brandon Bean part of me thinks okay they want to be re-signed here they they maybe they want to be here because there's a certain level of success they can probably expect along with their money here with the, and and re, you know security and stability and reliability and consistency all of those things are valuable to humans is there a portion of our thinking that needs to adjust because of how much they are into the process or they are part of the culture that would make it worth paying one or either of them? My stance on Shaq and Jordan Phillips has not changed in the last couple of weeks since we've talked about it before. I think that the probability is that neither one of them will be with the Bills next year. If you were to ask me what I thought, I would say, well, you have to show me the contracts first. If we're capable of getting Shaq Lawson for Trent Murphy money, cutting Trent Murphy saves us $7.2 million, according to Spotrack. That's a no-brainer move as far as I'm concerned. But if you cut him and you give $8 million a year to Shaq Lawson, yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. Shaq Lawson's a better player than Trent Murphy. Absolutely, let's do it. If you want to keep Trent Murphy and then you want to sign Shaq and Shaq's market gets to like $10 million a year, then no, I'm not interested. If Jordan Phillips can be had at 
a reasonable starting contract. You know, he's making four and a half million dollars a year right now. If that number is eight or nine or maybe even 10, I talk about it. But if somebody on the open market offers him 12, 13, 14, absolutely not. I think Shaq Lawson snap to snap is a better player than Jordan Phillips. I think he plays the run better. I think you get consistent, consistent production from him on plays where he's not necessarily getting on the stat sheet. Jordan Phillips has splashier plays. He's leading the team in sacks. Of course he does. But I don't think that the market for what he's going to be able to get on the open market is going to line up with how the bills bills value them. That's my opinion. How much of a step backwards is it to not re-sign them and fill their spots with either street free agents or the draft? It depends on the players. How? Well, I guess... Okay, so let me ask this a different way. My assumption is like what I'm what I gather from what you just said is that it's not impossible or it's not a guaranteed such a step backwards that I have to pay them. No, you don't have to pay either of them. No, neither one of them is irreplaceable players. No, absolutely not. Now, their production is, I mean, attention grabbing. Yes, their production is. More than we expected. I mean, we were all talking about at the beginning of the year, like the defensive line is a problem. The pass rush is a problem. If you're going to roll out there and you're just going to say that Trent Murphy and Shaq Lawson are going to all of a sudden do things they've never done and Jordan Phillips is going to do things he's never done, that's probably not a good plan. That's what's happened. I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) Yeah. Jordan Phillips is doing something he's never done. Shaq Lawson is playing better than he never has. I mean, so... You know, when you when you lose those things, what is it going to do to our defense? I mean, is it okay? So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. If we kept them, would you be optimistic? Let's say we signed them regardless of the contract size. Would you be optimistic that we get the same production out of them next year as we got out of them this year? That is a concern of mine. That would that would make a big difference on how much you want to pay them. Right. Mm -hmm. If you were very confident that this is who they were for the next seven years each. I mean, you, you might feel differently. I would absolutely feel differently. If you, if you only made a rule where I simply don't pay people whose best season comes in a contract year, like if that's the only rule you had a salary cap, you'd be safe. I think Greg Thompson from Cover One mentioned that in my mentions not too long ago. But it, it's also a matter of binaries. Would you rather keep Matt Milano or Shaq Lawson, Nick? Matt Milano. Would you rather keep Shaq Lawson or Tremaine Edmonds? Tremaine Edmonds. Duh. Shaq Lawson or Jordan Poyer? That one's tough. Man. I don't know. I mean, it just depends on what our other... What's the alternative to Shaq at that point? Because Sean McDermott gets a lot of productivity out of, like, kind of mediocre safeties. He's got a history of that. He was a safety. He's... He's gotten good... I mean, there was a time when Kirk Coleman was a very productive safety for him. So, I don't know. Shaq Lawson or Tredavious White? Well, Trey Davies White. Duh. Shaq Lawson or Quentin Spain? I might go with Shaq Lawson on that one. Right. So you'll see where the valuation is, right? So if Quentin Spain signs a three-year, $18 million deal, okay, it's $6 million per, okay? And then Matt Milano signs a Shaq Thompson deal, which is $13 million a year, right? Then we know that Shaq is somewhere in that neighborhood, somewhere between those two numbers, right? 
is he closer to Spain or is he closer to Milano? Obviously, comparing across positions is not reasonable because they're each their individual markets. But the fact that we just had that conversation, we have a lot of people to pay. We have a lot Nick. of people to pay. We have a lot of people to pay. And some people want to put these two guys on the list and they think we have enough. We don't have enough to pay all of them. You don't. Sorry. You don't. You can't have a you cannot have a top 7 paid player at like 14 positions. That's okay. just not a thing that happens. Okay, here. I I have an experiment then that I think will help me and potentially I think it will help people who are listening. Who are the people that are on the list whether we whether you want to pay them or not? That are on the list that that need to get paid. Let's let's ignore Trey Edmonds because he and Josh Allen are too new, and they're that we've got them on the rookie deal. So you've got Jordan Poyer, you've got Matt Milano, you've got Shaq Lawson, you've got Jordan Phillips, um, Tre'Davious White. You got Tre'Davious White. Quentin Spain. Quentin Spain. Maybe Kevin Johnson. Mm-hmm. What else do we have on the offensive or defensive side of the ball? If you it, want to talk about Frank Gore, Frank Gore's in there. Okay. So of those positions, we said guard, defensive tackle, defensive end, outside linebacker, and safety and corner. What of those are the easiest plug-and-play draft? Not, again, cross positions, not fair, but running back. You pick a guy, fourth, fifth round, you can get some reasonable productivity out of him. Of those positions, which of those is the easiest to replace in the draft? Guard? As a general rule, I'd probably go running back, pass rusher if you have a high pick. Because as a general, finding pass rushers later in the draft who can come in and be productive is just very, very, very rare. Like, crazy rare. So if you have the assets to be high or you are high, then pass rusher can can be done high in the draft. And... Sometimes corner can be done high in the draft. Sometimes safety can be done high in the draft. What about guard? I mean, I, feel, I get the impression that guards from the third round and later are starting all over the league. Yes, that's true. I worry because of how Dawkins played when he didn't have a competent veteran next to him. Uh, and so you have to factor that into the evaluation. Yeah, sure. Because if you swap him out for a rookie, you might get reasonable production okay in a vacuum. But Dawkins' play might suffer because you, instead of taking him next to a reasonable, competent veteran, you're putting him next to a rookie. What about defensive tackle who can take reps? Well, we've established defensive tackle is a very, very, very long developing position. So I typically don't expect the first half of a defensive tackle's rookie year to really be anything. Okay. Off-ball linebacker Matt Milano style. You can find him later if you're really good at getting for a system. I mean, Matt Milano... Shaq Thompson, great great examples of this, right? If Linebackers are one of those really significant system fits things because different people ask different things of their linebackers. And if your scouts are really in tune with your coaching staff as far as what you're asking your linebackers to do and whether you think they can accomplish X, Y, and Z as part of your scheme, then you could potentially pick an off-ball linebacker later. But they're just, they just matter so much to Sean McDermott's defense that I'm simply, to me, re-signing Matt Milano is non-negotiable. Okay, so re-signing Matt Milano and Trey White is non-negotiable. I mean, corners are hard. Corners of his caliber are really hard. So Milano's non-negotiable. Trey White's non-negotiable. Poyer? Jordan Poyer's non-negotiable in my you, mind. You don't, you don't think we can get second round, third round safety that could... That I think could, this defense without Poyer and Micah Hyde... As a package. As a package is not as good. One of the things that 
makes this defense so good is that the two of them are so interchangeable that who's high and who's low and who's rotating doesn't tell the quarterback it doesn't anything. tell the quarterback anything yeah. which means you can look as basic as you want and still have five or six coverages in your back pocket and they're both yeah they both are real i mean they both are almost equally skilled in run support and in pass coverage i'm simply I mean, not willing to break up the tandem especially given the fact that jordan poyer came here and is unbelievably underpaid yeah, and i kind of wish we'd already done it i wish we would have done it last offseason yeah too. i wish we had done it last offseason but as far as i'm concerned those three are infinitely prioritized before you even start talking about Jordan Shaq, Phillips and Shaq Lawson. What about Spain? I prioritize Spain too. Yeah, I know you would. Yeah, Not because they're not good players, because I have enough concerns, and it, it's a matter of prioritization. It's just like, yes, I'd love to be able to do everything. I want to be able to buy my wife all the things for Christmas, literally all the things, but I don't make all the money. So because I don't make all the money, I can't buy all the things. I have to prioritize. I have a list of things I could buy my wife. I accumulate over the course of a year, right? It's like 37 pieces long, Nick. I can't buy 37 things. So I have to rank them based on what I feel the emotional impact would be to my wife when I gave it to her as far as long-term value goes. And I have to do that and then decide I'm going to buy her these things. Well, okay, so let me let me play economics then. Let me let me like suggest a a bird in the hand that we have that could help us save some money. We have Spencer Long under a 3-year deal. He is a starting caliber guard. You let Quentin Spain go because he's going to get his as he he's played for it. He deserves it. He's going to get his. You start Spencer Long and then you find another interior swing backup for less money and there you're paying spencer long on a contract that you already have this friendly and then you have to replace the interior swing are you opposed to that no i'm not opposed to it because i don't think quentin spain has played at a level that he's like oh my gosh if we don't resign him the whole world's going to collapse so i'm not opposed to the concept i'm not i'm also not opposed to moving cody fortigard well, we all know how everybody feels about moving. You, let's do the Cody Ford check-in. This is the Cody Ford check-in. We're gonna, we'll take a break right after this. Well, now we'll take a break first. Then we're gonna talk about Cody Ford. Then we'll come back. All right, stick with us, everybody. We'll be right back with you. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show. I'm Nick Bat. 
I'm Bruce Nolan. And we're going to do the Cody Ford check-in. It's like a weekly segment now. It's like we have a weekly segment. It should be. We like a sound bite. Cody Ford check-in with Nick and Nolan. I think we could could do that. We're going to do the Cody Ford check-in. So how did Cody Ford look on tape, Bruce? I thought he looked pretty well. I'm not going to lie. He looked pretty good. I, I, I was I was okay. He got he got help. We were clearly worried about T.J. Watt. Well, but he, the dude is just punching people, right? But T.J. Watt, his main thing. T.J. Watt has a really good get off, and he has a really good speed rush, and he bends really well. So my concern was that Cody Ford. We talked about this before. Slow feet's my problem, right? With Cody Ford, and I think he played pretty well against T.J. Watt on tape. I really do. He, he missed a cut block early in the game where T.J. Watt managed to get up. And T.J. Watt made a ridiculous play on a club move that was on a draw play in the red zone when Josh Allen hands it to Devin Singletary. It was that really bad sequence of plays where we ran the ball like a billion times in the red zone because we didn't trust Josh Allen to throw it for some reason. And, you know, Cody Ford did a really, really impressive club move and then kind of knocked down T.J. Watt and then climbed up to the second level. And T.J. Watt was able to recover and get the foot of Devin Singletary on what could have been a a fairly significant play. But T.J. Watt's an awesome player. He's going to get a player, too. That doesn't mean you just ignore all the other plays, right? It's not like, you know, uh, know, Greg Little in Carolina, right, who had – you know, over a hundred pass block snaps and gave up like sixteen pressures or something like that. Like, like it was, it was almost one out of five. That was bad. And Joe Marino locked on was asked the question on Twitter Tuesday about Greg Little. That's how I know that. But it wasn't that bad. Cody Ford played fine. Okay, so again, I'm not a, I'm not the scout. I'm not the analyst in this arrangement here. So my understanding of what Cody Ford's ailment was is that when he plays tackle a big part of what you're going to get is people are going to try to go around you they're going to try to beat you to your outside shoulder and get around you get to the quarterback real fast there are two ways in which those guys can which tackles are tasked with addressing that there's a move called the the kick slide and then there is if you're very long you can just use your wingspan and keep your hands on them and continue to just push them out and out and out and out and they just orbit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So the issue was that Cody Ford's kick slide wasn't exactly the most finesse-filled move in the world and that he wasn't that quick. Like, he wasn't that quick getting into it. And so that was what we were seeing in training camp, the stories where he was overcommitting to the outside and he was getting beat on a counter move to the inside because he's trying to cover up his own inadequacies. Is he getting faster or is his kick slide getting better? The th- both. So he's not necessarily getting faster, but he's he's coming out of a stance a little flatter than he previously was, which is good because it, it means that you have less, you have to carry less distance to cover him. And Cody Ford is lunging, which is nice, right? Feet come first, then hands. Any, any offensive line coach is going to tell you that, right? Feet first, then hands, right? You don't lunge at people. You get your feet in the right spot. And then when they come to you, you pop them. And so it's on the Tyler Croft touchdown pass. Go back and watch that play. Cody Ford, great rep against TJ Watt. Feet, then hands. I mean, just, and I've said this before, Cody Ford has an awesome punch. Like, I've never seen him pop a guy and then have that guy end up making a play on the, on the, on the ever. 
it, it, this isn't in pass protection, but I'm almost positive uh, cover one was talking about how I think they or it was either them or yards per pass. Gosh, now I can't remember. One of them said that Cody Ford it was in runs in, in in the running game, but Cody Ford was throwing guys out of the club. Yeah, is what they said he was doing. Yeah, you and I talked about this when he was coming out. That he, he'll he'll put his hands on you and he'll just drive you in the next week. He'll laugh maniacally like when he's driving you into like the water boy <laughs> on the sideline and my concerns with him well documented were always about pass protection they were always about pass protection you we talked about this post draft yep. you know that I, my concerns were about pass protection and there's reasonable concerns there however i thought he played really well this is the second game this year the denver being the first one and this game being the second one where i'm like okay Okay, I see you, Cody Ford. Like, maybe, maybe you're a tackle. Maybe you're a tackle. <laughs> I wouldn't hate it if you were a tackle. I'm just saying. Yeah. That's not to say he was without his issues. There was a third and 13 play where he got away with the most inappropriate mugging I have ever seen. He was... His snub nose pistol, basically. It, it was so <laughs> bad. It was so bad. Like, I, 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 I didn't even notice it on the live broadcast because it was almost off of the broadcast feed when the ball came out and it was a mugging. It was terrible. So it's not like, see, he didn't have any bad reps because he totally did. But overall, I think it's a success. Okay. What I want to do now is I want to talk about some specific players. Then we're going to talk about the offense writ large and coaching, and then we will shift in from that into Sean McDermott. So we've got a we've got a path ahead of us here. So John Brown crosses 1,000 yards. This is newsworthy. This is noteworthy. First person since Sammy Watkins to do it. Yes. And good on him. He deserves it. John Brown really yeah, does deserve it. John Brown's an easy person to root for. He, he deserved an opportunity to show that he could be a complete receiver, and the Bills were willing to give him that. He's not even doing the deep ball stuff. You know, that, again, I made this I've said this analogy before. If, you, if his agent was stocking him in a grocery store and putting him in a specific section, John Brown would be in the aisle that had the sign overhead hanging from the ceiling that said deep ball. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not even what we're doing with him at all. So good on him. I'm I'm very pleased for him. He's a he's a humble, likable personality, and I'm I'm pleased that we have him. I'm pleased that he's here. So his counterpart, his other part, his partner in crime, Cole Beasley, the other you know guy who came in the door at the same time as him, literally like like five or seven minutes away apart from each other. Yeah, different story. Not great, Bob. Not great, Bob. Not great, Bob. Against Pittsburgh, drops significant drops and i and i don't think i don't remember anybody else having any drops in this game dawson knox has been a you know a familiar whipping boy he had one catch i think on the first play of the game that was about it for him these drops and these situations i'll let you talk about cole beasley in general if you want to talk about him specifically or drops in general when they're coming from guys who you just like who aren't your normal suspects like if dawson knox continues to drop the ball you, it is him right it is it is nothing other than him Whenever you start getting drops from like all of this, like this mix mash of of different guys, and I'm not saying that's exactly what happened on Sunday, but you got drops now from Cole Beasley for a second time. Uh, this isn't the first game where he's had he's had a, a meaningful drop or two. Is this just fluky? Is this is it is it more than bad luck? 
it seems like it's a little more than bad luck because it's not the first time we've had some drops with Cole Beasley. I'm not ready to push the panic button on that right now for Cole Beasley. He's still getting used to Josh Allen and Josh Allen is not an overly easy quarterback to catch the ball for Josh Allen. If you were going to put the phrase throws a catchable ball, right? That would not be where you that stock would not Josh be Allen. high on Josh <laughs> Allen's list. You, you don't, you don't, that's not where you stock Josh Allen in the agent grocery store, right? Josh <laughs> Allen, it's coming at you like a piss missile and it's coming at you with some heat and it might be, be slightly off target, right? He's, this idea that he he airmailed two on Sunday, one of them to Cole Beasley over his head, drastically on a pass out to his left, and then one deep shot that was just absolutely nowhere near anybody. And then he, then he was in uh, Pat Demarco's ankles too. Yeah, that one wasn't airmail, but it was it was it was it's not always, good. It's it's the it's the opposite of it's the same problem. It's, yeah. You know. So it, it, Josh Allen has. Just because Josh Allen's accuracy is better doesn't mean Josh Allen's a precision passer who throws a nice catchable ball with reasonable velocity, with a nice spiral in the reasonable location where you come out of your break and it's on you. The tender That's arc, just, the tender arc into the breadbasket. Yeah, part of and people don't want to hear this, but part of drops is on the quarterback. Not well, not every time you drop the ball is a hundred percent of the blame on the receiver. Now. Specifically, the high pass to Cole Beasley, right? He should have caught that. He absolutely should have caught it, right? It was an unreasonable catch. Oh, God. Right? People make so much yeah. better catches. It wasn't all an unreasonable day. catch. It wasn't a good ball. But no. Everyone wants to blame one or the other. This is just lazy binary thinking, right? I want to blame one or the other, right? It's got to be Beasley or Allen, right? And that's just not the case. It can be both. Things are more often than not pluralities rather than binaries. When you say, oh, well, how do you fix the Browns? Well, you just fire Freddie. Okay, well, is, is Freddie the only problem? Well, no. Is he the plurality problem? Okay, now we can have a discussion, right? So should Cole Beasley have caught that? Yes. Should Josh Allen have thrown a better ball? Yes. Both those things are true. Josh Allen is not an easy quarterback to catch passes from, and that takes time. I mean, Beasley joked about it. He was like, you know, in training camp, you know, I turn around and the ball's like on my face pass. And I'm like, whoa, buddy. Hey, <laughs> friend, how's it uh, going over there with the, are you trying to kill me? Are you trying to kill a man? There was an amazing interaction on Twitter during the game. Nate Geary, WGR uh, radio personality said, yeah, I think maybe Josh Allen might need to take a little bit off of these passes a little bit. And Michael Kist from, uh, from Vox Media's SB Nation's uh, Bleeding Green Nation for the Philadelphia Eagles said, no, throw it harder. I want to see him kill a man. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's right. That's it right there, right? Yeah. Because Josh Allen has an un unreasonably strong arm. Brett Favre-esque, you might say. This was a common story when Favre was a player. That, that he it, was hard, fingers. it was hard for people to catch the ball from him. And. I, I believe that. I absolutely believe that there's an adjustment that takes place, and Josh Allen has to adjust. The receivers have to adjust. we got to figure it out. So because of that, I'm not ready to hit the panic button on drops because there's a reasonable explanation for why it is we might have higher than normal drop ratio. Everyone used to, wants to use the drop percentages to excuse Josh Allen, and some of it is. But some of the drop percentage is because of Josh Allen. It's just not that simple. Yeah, but I mean, you wonder too if he can if he's delivering the ball in a window that he uniquely can get the ball through 
because of the velocity he can put on the ball in a short period of time after he sees it late and all of that. The wide receivers got to rise to the occasion. Absolutely. I mean, that's, 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 that's part of this. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I agree that in, there are certainly circumstances where it's like, dude, you can you can take a little bit off, and we're not going to have you know a guy taking this for a pick six. Like we can t- we can take a break if you get two hands on it. You need to catch it. Yeah, but there can be contributing factors. Sure. to that, and that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I think one of the things too that's so interesting though is that John Brown's hands are like covered in stickum. Like all year, he is catching the ball away from his body, like, and he's it's it's a yard in front of him, and he is just like like the claw machine that works. John you know? Brown did get more time with Josh Allen in the offseason than Cole Beasley did because of the core muscle injury. Yeah, I, okay. I, I mean, that's fine. We could we can we can say that that is a piece of data that we have that suggests there's there's a there's there's something. a correlation. It's something we don't right? know if it's a causation, but yeah. there's certainly a correlation. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about, since we got there, let us talk about Josh Allen. So I've got a large, I think there's two things to talk about with Josh Allen right now. One is, again, the the fourth quarter showing up, the moment, just like it just doesn't, I don't know, it just like, I don't know if he likes it or it just doesn't bother him or he doesn't think about it or if it doesn't, it it, it means nothing to him. I, I don't know which of these things it is. We are getting good quarterback play in high-stakes moments. We are in high-stakes moments because sometimes we're not getting quarterback good quarterback play prior. Admittedly, this is a, it's a game though. I mean, this is the exciting. This is the part of the entertainment of the of the game. Like, it, it, this is a good thing to have. You know, I, I I'm not gonna. Be, you're not gonna have me be the guy who's like, well, you know, we wouldn't have been in that position for Josh to win us the game in the fourth quarter. If he had played great in the third quarter, yeah, okay. I mean, like that. Sure, I guess. But. It's true. Josh <laughs> Allen is the cause of and solution to a lot of the Bills' problems. Yeah. I don't. I. I. Okay. Like, I'm not going to complain whenever we win in a, like a exciting, meaningful fashion. I wrote down something about Josh Allen in the fourth quarter, and I thought it was it was an interesting way to phrase it. And I thought I'd bring it up to you and see what you thought about it. But in the fourth quarter, the the shift of the dynamic between good play and bad play changes because the negative becomes losing instead of might lose. So I'll give you, I'll I'll give you a metaphor to describe what I'm talking about. Sometimes when my wife and I are having discussions about value propositions in our personal life, we'll play a little game called what's the worst that could happen. And we, we actually extrapolate this to what's the worst that can happen. And that usually helps to establish value and helps to maybe pacify any anxiety that there might be about it and really helps to kind of plan for that. So with Josh Allen, when you don't take a chance in the first quarter or if you throw a pick or if you don't take this deep shot or if you don't take this risk, right, something along those lines, the negative becomes we might lose this game. That's what happens. We might lose this game. If you throw this pick, we might lose. If you attempt this de- this intermediate route that's barely coming open and you don't get it, we might lose. In the fourth quarter, it's if I don't make this throw, we're going to lose. So might as well. Let's do it. So I wonder if that mentality has an effect on Josh Allen, right? I'm not certainly not the psycho you know analyst of this pod, but... I do wonder if that has an effect on him. I do like, wonder his his 
like any of his hesitation goes away sure. because he knows like well it's our, the the conclusion is the same whether I whether this goes poorly right. or I don't make I don't even right. try. If I throw this pass and it gets picked off we lose. If I don't throw this pass we lose. So here we go. <laughs> you know, yeah. let's do it. Yeah, so sure. it, the, the value proposition changes because it's not about oh I might put my team in a bad position, bad field position we might lose the game, right? That might hurt us. It's now we're going to lose if I don't do something. So with that urgency that he plays with, that, dare I say, fearlessness he plays with the fourth quarter, we need to kind of get that a little bit more in the first and second and third quarters. But overall, I think Josh Allen played it pretty well. It wasn't a great game. It wasn't the Dallas game. It wasn't the Miami Dolphins game. It wasn't the Denver game. He played okay. He did what he needed to do. He didn't throw the ball a lot by any means. He did have some drops. And he threw, threw some off-target passes. You know, Cole Beasley, both of those passes should have been caught. And John Brown, Josh Allen made a ridiculous throw to John Brown in between three defenders in zone coverage. And John Brown dropped it right after we just talked about him having stick him hands, right? Yeah, right. But those are three passes that hit him on the hands that need to be caught that would have extended drives. Really good intermediate balls obviously the Cole Beasley one the one that ended up being interception was high but overall Josh Allen played fine so so this is a this is what I wanted to get into with Josh Allen you talking about him playing well and I have a similar opinion about how he played now I also recognize this and this you know we're going to go back I I I said they don't live rent free in my head but here I am talking about PFF right it's not just them, but it's it's all of the it's all of the people who use statistics to gather information. I'm not even going to be so so dismissive as to say box score scouts or whatnot. But Josh Allen's stat line was very modest. Oh yeah, very modest against Pittsburgh. Simultaneously, I saw several big boy throws. Oh yeah, and, and, and big boy plays and plays that are like that is good quarterbacking, right? Now, I always guess I get a little bit defensive in this circumstance because I'm like, we were playing a really good defense. A modest stat line against a good defense is not necessarily a modest performance, right? I mean, like, it's they don't, that's not necessarily the conclusion you ought to come to, in my, this is my opinion. And so I always, I start wondering about this because I watched, I watched, the Monday night game last night and Drew Brees just doing like literally a historic performance. One I really, in- really wanted him to go 30 for 30 oh, so that yeah. there could be a 30 for 30 about his 30 for 30. Yeah, right, right, right. I made a pun and like nobody laughed. <laughs> well, I'm the only one here, so. No, I mean, I made it like in my house. Oh. My dogs just looked at me. My wife didn't laugh. Well, maybe I didn't make it out loud. Maybe I just thought it and that's why no one laughed. I That's will, a possibility. I'm gonna that let, happens sometimes. I'm going to just let you wonder about that. Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, Sean, you, you see Drew Brees' stat line or Jameis Winston's stat line from this weekend, and it doesn't matter whether the defense was good or not. That is a good performance. Like, that is good quarterbacking. 300-plus yards, 400-plus yards. I don't know how many touchdowns Drew Brees had. Three touchdowns. I mean, multiple touchdowns. For Jameis Winston, low low number of interceptions. You could have any quarterback in the league put up these numbers 
and people will look at it and go, "Pretty good day, pretty pretty good." I mean, that's you know, you're doing something. You're do, you're you're doing some work. And then I look at other thing. I look at Josh Allen's stat line, and I think ah, I, it's hard to come to that conclusion looking at the results. But when I watch the game, I don't feel like it was a the modest stat line means it was a modest performance. I just I like they don't connect, and I don't know. You know, we t- we've talked about the 300-yard game or multiple touchdowns versus to no interceptions or one interception. All of these kinds of things, they are the connotation of good quarterback play. At the same time, though, that's not really what you're going to get against certain defenses. So how do you co- – like, what is good – against a good defense. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I, there's there probably aren't like harder fast rules, but it's what I'm starting to struggle with because we because we get into these dust-ups with people all the time now who are trying to use numbers to say what you think isn't right. Like this guy isn't good because these numbers say he's not good and you just think I like there's something that's not connecting here. Well, the first thing that I would try to tell you is that let me offer this is a possibility, and that's that fandom is biasing you. So let's start with that. It's the elephant in the room. If you think that every game Josh Allen plays is good, and every draft pick that Brandon Bean makes is great, and every decision that Sean McDermott makes is great, you're wrong. And you're wrong because you're being biased by your emotional connection to being wanting, wanting that to be the case. So there's always an aspect of that associated with this whole thing. The second thing is that we have a tendency to not stick with our method of measurement. So if you're a DVOA guy and you only use it to prove your point when it's right and you don't use it to prove your point when you don't like it, then your bias is showing at that point. If you really, really like completion percentage and when Josh Allen throws has a 71% completion percentage and you're like, ha ha. And then the second someone rolls out that he had a 52% completion percentage in one game, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa completion percentage is, is stupid. Then you're also biased. Like that's how that works. You can't love the method of measurement. Doesn't that, that doesn't care. The method of measurement is not biased. You are. So let's start with that. We don't use consistent methods of measurement. We don't pick one that we like and say, okay, we're going to use this as a standard. We don't do that. We use whatever it will, we, whatever we want to, that supports our underlying opinion. If we go into the game, we say, Josh Allen's, Josh Allen's amazing. We're going to use whatever stats we have to, to convince people and ourselves that Josh Allen's amazing. Because we're not objective, and we want to be fooled, and we want to be convinced, and we want, we'll do whatever we have to, to hang on to that point. And that's okay. That's just part of being a fan. And we just have to admit that, that's, that it is biased. Because it is. And so that's the second thing. The third thing is that there are some defense-weighted methods of measurement. DVOA is one of them. The problem is that those things become more and more accurate over time. So at the very beginning of the year, DVOA means nothing. It's garbage. You can make an argument it's garbage all the time, and that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that too. But like, I'm willing to listen to it. But even the even the proponents of DVOA, right? If you got them in a in a room, you know, off the record, they, they'll admit to you that DVOA is partially a retroactive statistic. If the teams that Buffalo previously beat start playing better, Buffalo's DVOA goes up. 
even though they weren't on the field with them that Sunday. Defeats the whole any given Sunday thing. But then you're like, well, how do I adjust it for a defense? Because statistical significance is a thing. If you're only one game in, did you beat them because you're good or did you beat them because they're bad? You don't know. You're only one game in. And so that's part of the struggle. I'm not saying that all this stuff is useless. I'm saying all of it is flawed in some way. And so really what it boils down to is you got to watch it and you got to know what you're watching and you got to know why it is that they did what they did. And Josh Allen can have a good day that ends in four of 10. Like that's a possibility because context Josh Allen can has a really bad day that ends in seven out of 10. That's you could have a really bad day too. Methods of measurement, whatever they are, should be consistently used. They should be used at a broad enough brush that you're not cherry picking the ones that fit your narrative. And they should be going into with open, um, open mind. And the fact of the matter is they're not. They're not going into like that. You don't go in with an open mind. You don't go with open mind at all. That's why I get people in my in my mentions who, you know, tell me to go F myself after I say that Cody Ford didn't play well, because all you want is to hear a thing that you like. That's it. That's all you want. And and you, we just have to recognize that in and of ourselves. And so Josh Allen playing reasonably, which I think we both agree he did. Josh Allen played reasonably against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I feel that way. He didn't play bad. Certainly. The stark difference between him and Duck Hodges is very, very <laughs> obvious. Josh Allen made multiple throws that J- Duck Hodges will never be able to make ever in his entire life. He just can't. And Duck Hodges made multiple plays that Josh Allen never will. Or at least won't ever again. He used to make these ridiculous hero ball throws against it, but he doesn't. And so the fact of the matter is football is complicated. And you can't. We, we try. We try. People try to come up with wins above replacement like they do in baseball and DVOA and EPA and QBR. And we try. And there will never be, there will never be a perfect metric of me- measurement ever. It's not going to happen. I'm not saying we should stop trying. I'm saying it's not possible because of how complicated football is. It's just not. So the only way for us to be able to say what's good against a good defense is to be able to pick something we like and be consistent with it, right? Say, okay, well, these are five things that I think are are really important as far as measuring quarterbacks. I think we should probably do a pod on that this offseason. Like, what are our particular methods that we like nope. about a quarterback? Don't want to, don't want to, nope, don't want to. I don't, I, we, we will, of course. I know we will. But I, I that's one of the things, I mean, th- th- what you're describing is a little bit of a choice where it's like, I don't, I just always think the context of these things matters way too much. Like I've just I've seen or I've been tagged in or I've been people have shared with me the the dust ups they get in with people about things like completion percentage. And it's like, okay, like there are times when the completion percentage makes sense to me. Like what I'm seeing in the completion percentage results they seem they make sense okay and then there are times where they i I like there's something that's not being taken into account in this method of measurement and so i just choose kind of wholesale 
to be like, hey, okay, it's information, but like, I'm never going to use it for anything. Like I, I'm not going to really, I mean, like there's a couple things I do. Like I like adjusted completion percentage because I think it does an attempt at making some of the, that'll probably be one for me, I guess, if you want to tie me down. There you go. Yeah. I mean, like we're already on our way right here. (laughs) Wonderful. wonderful. We're on our way. Yes. I, you're how to evaluate quarterbacks from Nick and Nolan and our preferences. Oh my God. I'm so excited. The, there are just, yeah, there's just a lot of these things where like, to me, what they I don't know. To me, it's that people weaponize. They weaponize the information. When the information is not designed to be a weapon, the information is designed to be information. Well, information, if it's information you don't want to see, you will interpret as a weapon. There, I mean, so because we're, we're emotionally sure. connected to this, we want Josh Allen to be a great quarterback. Anytime we see something that doesn't indicate that he is or doesn't indicate that he will be. Get mad about it. And that's just kind of how this works. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not out here championing that Josh Allen is the guy. I don't maybe I'm not looking in the mirror clearly enough, but I'm not seeing myself turn away from bad statistics. But I am like I'm seeing other people use statistics and suggest they're maybe more meaningful or more all-encompassing or more definitive than they are in my opinion they were all just pieces of information none of them is the one that is the straw that breaks the camel's back but if you used them in concert maybe like five of them yes you may be able to develop a picture if you approved of the usage of them is this what you want santa to bring you for christmas Is yes. this this pod Santa? Santa's gonna bring it. Yeah. Well, Santa's a creepy effer. Ho 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 ho. Merry Christmas. And um <laughs> not if he brings this apparently. No, still uh, creepy. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. And a happy new year. But you'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) We're going to. Okay. I think with that, unless you have any other last thoughts, we're going to take a quick break. That's fine. Okay. We'll take a quick break. Come back. We're going to talk about the coaching staff and then we're talk about the New England Patriots. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm Nick Bat. I'm Bruce Nolan. <laughs> That's like a person who like says something the same way with every cadence, no matter the circumstance. They like they can't change their intonation. I'm Bruce Nolan. That's I, who I am. That's this is this is me. This is me now. All right. This is my life now. There we go. So coaching staff wise, I I continue to like Brian Dable. I, th- I think maybe if you want to give me statistics that tell me Brian Dable is not good, I I may I may turn away from those. And I'll tell you what I like about him the most. I said it on Twitter. I've said it on Twitter multiple times, and I think I may have said it on the pod previously. It seems like every game we see five or six interesting, interesting, not even just standard, we're going to hit this gap on this counter, pull this lineman. Like It's not even something so rudimentary. Interesting plays that we have not seen previously. And... He's installing them every week. And they're they're from like different kinds of systems. They're like from different kinds of 
of offensive philosophy. This week we saw the running back stay stationary and the quarterback walks the ball to him on the shotgun handoff. We saw multiple of those. This week we saw the Josh Allen roll out, spin around, come back, throw it across the field to Cole Beasley. Right, they're faking the quarterback power. Yes. We've, we, I mean, every week, I, I just think we, we are seeing, like, the number of things that he is installing that are like, I haven't seen that before, compared to, and I'm only comparing it to, all of the offensive coordinators we have had the past 15 years. How many times did I feel like, oh, my, that was interesting. I haven't seen that before, and it's week 15. I, I feel like that literally every single week with Brian Dable, and that, to me, is something that feels very different, and I appreciate about him. I'm completely okay with that. I do think there's some criticism to be given for a couple drives that Sean McDermott had his hand in. So at the end of the first half, we got the ball with a minute 50 and timeouts. And you and I, I think, are going to disagree on this because you talked about it before. But in a game where you just finished saying that drives are precious, offensive possessions are precious, we chose to squander one because we were scared of turning the ball over. If they're so precious, you better take advantage of what you got, especially when you get a minute 50 and multiple timeouts. So that's not Brian Dable. That's Sean McDermott and Dable together deciding that, hey, we're not going to be aggressive here. We're going to turtle up and we're going to get into the half. I completely disagree with it. 100%. And as much as Sean McDermott has grown in regards to accepting the analytical benefits that comes with some of the coaching decisions on game day, that one, absolutely not. In addition, after Tredavious White's interception, and we decide to run the ball six straight plays and kick a field goal, I know Frank Gore, that was a trick play. He was going to throw it. That's great. But running Gore off tackle and outside is completely against everything that Gore does. You load it up in heavy personnel, which is your worst rushing formation in general. And I'm just, I, I'm willing to criticize Dable for some of those things. I think there's criticism to be had from Brian Dable for those things. That doesn't mean I want to fire Dable. That means, again, when there's something that I don't like about it, then I'll complain about that thing. But I am still not here for fire Brian Dable. I'm still not here. I, I, I'm not willing to because there's so many other positives like you just mentioned. I can pick out specific things I don't like. And Sean McDermott got lumped into that when Brian Dable flat out said, yeah, Sean and I decided that we, we wanted to play for the field goal there. He said that in his press conference. Marcel Louis-Jacques ESPN reported it on Twitter. And that's that's a duality. That's McDermott and Dable together deciding to be pansies, essentially. And Josh Allen is not someone you can't trust in the red zone. Has he thrown a red zone interception this year? Not to my knowledge. I can't remember any off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't think so. But And with an arm like that, his ability to fit into tight windows and his rushing ability, he becomes a big weapon in the red zone. You know how to quickly take the ball out of the hands of your best weapon? Run the ball out of power formation six times in a row. Now, I know one of them was Devin Singletary on the draw that TJ Watt tripped him and all that stuff like that. But 
that I think deserves some criticism. I, I'm not, I hear and understand people's frustration with end of half stuff. I, here is where my head is at and why I'm okay with it. Because I did say, somebody did come into my mentions during the game, and I think you might have saw that. I said, I, I'm fine with it. Like, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I saw it. <laughs> yeah, you saw it. <laughs> I, I made a did. note. Yeah, I bet you did. I, and here's, here's why I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it because against a Pittsburgh defense, if you're going to move down the field in an, in an expedited manner, okay, you're going to deviate from your typical full playbook because you, you have, I mean, I think they had, I think, I don't remember. I think it was a minute, minute 50, minute 50. So multiple timeouts. Okay. So yes, they had at least two timeouts. I thought they might've had three. You were just going to, that's a lot of time. Now a minute 50 is a lot of time and three and two two or three timeouts is is a lot of time. I'm still, it, it, I mean, it's right on the cusp where even even what I'm about to voice, I'm still kind of like, I can see the other side of things here. But in general, here's my perspective. If you're going up against a good defense and your offense has its flaws, part of what I do not want to do is press when I don't have to press. When I can run a five, six, seven minute drive, which is what I think the Bills were running most of the time. They were not running two minutes. They were running, you know, a, a significant mix and a lot of stuff that was eating up the time, eating up the clock. And I don't think that two or three timeouts was going to allow you to do that same drive in that period of time. Rather than deviate and try to create something that's high risk, high reward, this is my opinion, I'm fine within that circumstance going to the half and try and making sure that you you don't avoid the you do avoid the turnover because it wasn't a badly thrown ball that caused the last turnover. It was it was fluky, you know, and sometimes I call me superstitious. I want to avoid I mean I'm I'm just being candid with how I how I would call how I'm okay with the coaches making decisions in a certain way. And that when you can't run your offense exactly the way you want because you only have so much time and it's the end of the half, not the end of the game, and you're not far behind and you don't need that score in order to make up a big deal, I'm okay with going to the half and kicking it off and making them drive the whole field. I'm okay with it. I would counter with two points. Number one, losing an offensive possession that had a reasonable chance of getting points because of time is almost as big of a risk as getting picked. So you didn't stop a bad thing from happening. You chose to do a bad thing. Losing a possession is a bad thing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Allen has historically played better in the no in the no huddle, in the hurry up. So if that was what you were forced to deviate to, you'd be deviating toward a strength. But it's not what we were doing on Sunday. It's what we've been doing for the last two months. Yes, but game plan and and choosing to appreciate your opponent's strengths also. You can't choose to go into a game without a two-minute offense. Like You can't choose to just say, I, I refuse to go hurry up this game. I'm just not going to do it. No, I agree. And if we, were in a, if we had been at the end of the game where the situation dictated that was absolutely necessary, of course, that's what you have to do. I don't think that we were in that position. 
possessions are precious, man. I and I agree. I said, I'm the one who said it. Yeah, I so agree. you you wasted. It's, but it's not. And you're you're wasting it for fear that if you throw the ball and it gets picked off, you're going to waste it. No, no. I'm fear that if I throw the ball and I picked off, I give them points. It's about giving them right. points. So when you waste a possession, you are giving them points. That's what you're doing. You're giving them another opportunity. When you throw a pick, you're giving them an opportunity for points. When you lose a possession, you're giving them opportunity for points. That's what you're doing. Yeah, but when you're going in, when you're going into the half, you're not giving them anything that they didn't have anyways. Right. You you are lowering your own threshold to score, which makes their threshold to score increase relative to your own. Yeah, but it's not giving so, them points. But it's, it has the same net effect. Whether you take a possession away from yourself or you give them another one, they're still now plus one in possessions. Regardless of how you did it, you added another possession to them by taking another one off your plate. And that's bad. Possessions are precious. And this is the same methodology that leads to go for it on fourth down more often. It's the same methodology because possessions are precious. Mm -hmm. And you punting the ball to them, right, gives up possession which is precious. Having the ball is the most precious thing in the world because your op- opportunity to score is like 99% higher if you have the ball than if you don't have the ball. So I'm I'm never okay with us giving up a reasonable possession. And I think analytically speaking, that's probably okay. Yeah, I mean, like I, the statistics would, the advanced statistics would probably say that not attempting to score in that in that situation hurts your win probability. I just the the way that that game was going and the difficulty we were having on offense to date at that point in the game to have a limited playbook against a difficult defense where if we attempted to do things and failed, we would have either been giving them the ball back or we would have been turning the ball over, hypothetically, which is probably what the bigger fear would have been, and giving them an abri- a shortened field. I just don't have a problem going to the half. We're going to agree to disagree on this. That's fine. I just don't have a problem going to the half. The context of that situation matters. There's like five or six compounding things that on the pros and cons list for me wind up in the column that don't always that aren't always there it was it's a big part of the opponent it's a big part of the field position it's a big part of what the offense looked like so far in that game i just it didn't bother me i just think that if you make doc hodges drive the field it's not going to happen and if you put yourself in a position where you're going to potentially give them a shortened field when you don't have to put yourself in that position because you're using an abbreviated playbook. Just just make them drive the field. Just make them always drive the field. That's it. That's my point. You want to talk about the Patriots? Yeah, let's talk about the Patriots. Do you think we got a chance? I do. I do think we have a chance. Hmm. If you had a, what's your percentage of confidence? 40%. Oh, that's pretty handsome. All right. Tell us what you think about the Patriots. Tom Brady doesn't scare anybody anymore. Oh, my God. Okay, it's happening. Everybody stay calm. What's the procedure, everyone? What's the procedure? Stay calm. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Everybody calm down. No. Nor should he. No. And plus, Sean McDermott has his number anyways. It's, It's also not. You and I had a discussion with Rock Pile Reporter, I think. Maybe. About Tom Brady's receivers. 
and how he doesn't trust him. And that's absolutely true. It's pretty oh, clear. Oh, doesn't trust him. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, It's yes, pretty yes. clear on film he doesn't trust his receivers. Yes. And that's absolutely a part of their struggles on offense. The other part is Tom Brady's, Tom Brady's basically washed at this point. Yeah, his arm is... Uh, he's I mean, he's yeah. missing open guys yeah. in weird places. Like, he's just not connecting on throws that he connected on early in his career. It's just not there anymore. And... Tom Brady is not going to light a team up for 400 yards and four touchdowns. That's just not a thing anymore. And he's Peyton in Denver. Not good Peyton in Denver. Record setting. Peyton the last year. Oh, no, yeah. He's, he's, he's the last year that Peyton was in Denver. Yeah. His defense is going to take him if he's going to go. And so for me, us not making crucial mistakes means we win the game. I believe that. Yeah. Now. I- yeah, okay, go on. They're more likely to cause you to make crucial mistakes. If Josh Allen plays the way Josh Allen did in the first game, we'll lose again. If we get a punt blocked again, yeah, that's what I'm worried we'll about. lose again. Right? Special teams. The Patriots, at this point in their arc, are stealing wins from you by being better coached. They notice this one ten- tendency on film, and they go get it. How'd they get the film? Ah, <laughs> not amused. I think that's. I think that I'm. I'm. I'm for all of those. Nonstop. You're for all the film jokes. All the film. All the cheater jokes. I'm. I'm for all of them. They will beat you because Belichick's the goat. That's why they'll beat you. They're no longer going to beat you because Brady's great. Now they're beating you because Belichick's the goat. It's a different method. It, it's almost come full circle because early in Brady's career, they were beating you because Belichick was the goat. Yep. That's why they were beating you. Yep. They were beating you with defense and special teams and being well coached and not making mistakes and playing great situational football. And that's how they great, were beating you. Great situational football. The best at situational football. Then for a while, they just blew the doors off you. You know, it was Randy Moss and Wes Welker. It's just, well... Uh, the last time we were on Sunday Night Football, it did not go great, Bob, <laughs> for that exact same reason. So now we've come full circle, and they're beating you the way that they used to beat you. So for Bills, this is going to be about preparation, and more importantly, I wrote down self-scouting. The Patriots game is more about self-scouting than any game of the year. Because if you don't know what your weaknesses are, they will show you. They will show you real quick. <laughs> and if you think that they you had them patched up from the last time, the Patriots go, no, you actually have four more. You just didn't know about them until I showed them to you just now. <laughs> Trust me, I'm going to help you. If you need help, you know, it's it's Stanley from the office. Boy, have you lost your mind because I'll help you find it. What you're looking for? Ain't nobody going to help you out there. Jesus can come through that door and he's not going to help you. That's what Belichick is doing. And he's helping you find the things that you're bad at. And if you don't recognize those things and have a counter move ready, you need to be a step ahead of Belichick. You need to say, okay, here's what I think Belichick's going to do. And here's what we're going to do to counter the thing that he's going to do. You cannot go into the game and say, you know what? We're just going to exert our will on the Patriots. We're going to do that thing. We're just going to be us. We're going to go out there, play Bills football, right? We're going we're gonna to exert our dominance on offense. I'm mostly talking about the offensive side of the ball at this point for the Buffalo. And it's going to be great. Because whatever it was that you were going to do is not going to work. Just telling you right now, it's just not going to work. Whatever it is that your strength was as a team is just not going to work. It. Belichick is probably the greatest ever at taking away the thing that you do well. 
And you have to have a counterpunch. Tyler Croft might have to be, have a big game. You know why? Because no one's going to plan for Tyler Croft. Bill Belichick's not going to waste any time planning for Tyler Croft. How about Tyler Croft getting that touchdown pass the week after you and I said that he probably needs to, you know, get a little bit more snaps and throw those uh, pivotal routes to Tyler Croft instead of Dawson Knox? Yeah, it was interesting. In that situation, it's a conscious decision by the coaches to put Tyler Croft on the field over Dawson Knox. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the, 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 the snaps, I don't know if they were 50-50 or what they were, but it, I, don't, I don't know what they were. But, I mean, it is a very intentional decision to put Croft on the field in that circumstance over Dawson Knox. It's third down in the red zone. We can't afford a drop. That's probably why Dawson Knox wasn't on the field. Yeah, that's I'm fine with that. I mean, I yeah, okay. So, that's my overarching theory on the Patriots. I do think that they're going to run the ball effectively and they've they've really did done well at kind of figuring out a good way to scheme up a running game recently and I do think the run defense is going to get tested because unlike other teams specifically Dallas and specifically Pittsburgh why didn't Pittsburgh just hand the ball to James Conner 30 times they probably could have won the game why didn't Dallas keep feeding Zeke and they go away from it New England will not make this mistake New England will run the ball 40 times and have Tom Brady throw nine passes if they have to they'll do it and the Bills need to be ready for it because we've Kind of gone away from talking about the rush defense is, until is, this week. Is there anything that the rush defense needs to do aside from just be disciplined and play good football? Like, is there is there a schematic weakness that we need to address that the Patriots are going to try to do? Or are they simply going to say, I don't really think they fixed anything. I think other teams just aren't taking advantage of it. We're just going to force them to try to stop it 40 times. And we know that 12 of them are going to go big. I truly believe the Patriots might go heavy and run a lot of duo and just kind of make your linebackers, right? Make your linebackers pick the right hole and go. And it's one of those things where if I was a team facing the Buffalo Bills, I would not throw the ball 45 times. The secondary is too good. The Bills pass defense is not just good because people choose to run the ball. A couple times, it's one of those... Why are the statistics like they are? Well, we're the number two pass defense. Well, yeah, you're the number two pass defense because no one's throwing the ball at you. Because the only way they they measure that is by total yards. If you did yards per drop back versus yards per rush, that'd be a little different. But this is one of those scenarios where the Bills Bills run defense isn't fixed necessarily. We don't know. It might be. But we know for a fact that Tom Brady throwing into Sean McDermott's pass defense has not gone great, Bob. And so you can't expect them to come out and do the things that we know aren't going to work. The Bills secondary is legit. Now, they might pick on Levi Wallace, but now I'm confident we would yank him and put Kevin Johnson in and roll a safety over top if that came to that. Because we're confident Trey White can do what he needs to do. So... It's a scenario where I'm not afraid. This is really strange, but when they drafted in Keel Harry, you and I had this discussion. I'm not afraid of in Keel Harry. I wasn't. I was not a huge fan of him coming out in the draft. I called him late stage Des Bryant. That's what I called him when I scouted him coming out in the draft. I'm not afraid of in Keel Harry. And one of the things I think you could see is a lot of really creative run screens and run plays from the Patriots. You could see a lot of handoffs to Keel Harry to get him to space. 
you could see a lot of jet. I saw a lot of two backs in a shotgun. I saw a lot of that. I saw some Julian Edelman in the backfield. I saw a lot of that. A lot of moving bodies. Side a lot to of side. moving bodies. Yeah. I, I, I think the Patriots are starting to get more creative with the run game because they realize Tom Brady can't win them. So much like the Ravens game, I think the Bills' ability to deal with a creative run game is going to be really impressive and important to this game. Does, does how well we played that against Baltimore give you any optimism? Yes. In fact, that's what gives me a lot of the optimism. A lot of the optimism is that. My pessimism comes from the fact that our offense against their their defense. defense. (laughs) Yeah. And we're going to learn a lot about Josh Allen. I'm really excited because I want to see Josh Allen. If Josh Allen plays really well against this, this game, against this team this time around, I think that there's a significant amount of optimism that comes along with that. I mean, they're a great defense. They're a great defense, and it's the second time he's played them this year. And if he can learn, we've talked about this before. One of my favorite things, maybe, my first favorite thing about Josh Allen is I think it's hilarious. I think his, his arm is hilariously strong. Like, it's so strong that it's funny. Yeah, you can, so, can literally make jokes about it. I make jokes about how strong his arm is. That's my favorite thing. My second favorite thing about Josh Allen is that he seems to learn. And so... Much like a supercomputer from a sci-fi horror movie who learns, and oh no, you know, not the Disney original movie Smart House, but like, you know, I'm thinking like like System Shock, like the old PC game System Shock. I need some nerds here to jump into my mentions and tell me they love me. I'm sorry. But yeah, I, you got me. When you have an AI or like the Portal games, like you have an AI who's like learning and developing and it becomes scary. It's a little bit like Josh Allen, and I need him to show me that he learned and I think he can. And that's one of the things that I'm so excited about to watch this this weekend. All right. Patriots win if. Patriots win if Josh Allen turns over the ball two times. I'm going to say Patriots win if. I'm going to say Patriots win if they get three sacks. I think that if Josh Allen, I'm a little bit less optimistic about Josh Allen showing us something significant in this situation because of something you said earlier, which is that Belichick is who he's going up against. You know what I mean? Like, we're going up against McDaniel's creative run offense. Well, we're going up against Belichick's defense, and he has he's got a little bit on Josh Allen right now. And Josh Allen's made progress, so now he's going to try to say, okay, well, you've made progress, young son. Can you handle this? And he's going to give him things. And, you know, Allen holds the ball sometimes. And I just get worried that if he's getting sacked a lot, that means he's holding the ball. That means he's not seeing things. That means it's taking too long and we're probably not having a good offensive day. Bills win if. Josh Allen connects on two 25-plus yard passes. If he can get the deep ball to land, we won this game. I should I should specify Two twenty-five plus yard passes in the air. If he throws a screen and goes for twenty-five pa- yards, it does not count. We're talking air yards here, folks. Air yards. Bills win if the Patriots get no points from special teams or defense. If it is only offense that the Patriots have to score with, only offense. Bills win. That's what I'll say. Okay. It's a little risky, but I'll take it. I mean, I think that's a huge part of how the Patriots could win is getting points on defense or special teams. Not unreasonable. That's And that's not good for us because we are not getting a whole lot of points out of that. Now, it would be great to get some. 
Other people do it. I would be nice. I would like that, but it doesn't happen. So, oh, so we are celebrating, right? We are enjoying this lovely, wonderful, warm, content feeling of being guaranteed a spot in the postseason. Fifth seed at least. The snowball's chance in hell opportunity that we could host a game in the AFC Championship if the if us and the sixth seed both got there, right? That would be something. Well, as we're all, you know, going through and, and getting ready for the Patriots and Saturday game and another weird routine where Thursday, then we got Sunday night, now we got this, just nothing is, you know, no no Sunday one o'clock games, no nothing normal. As you're trying to keep this all in mind, I do have a word of wisdom for you. I just want to make sure you do not forget this one thing. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha. to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux. So how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. So if it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.